All right, good morning, Grace Orange. Get ready to open up your Bibles for the only perfect part of the worship service, the Word of God. I'm going to read today Acts 4, 13 through 31. I'm going to ask you in a moment to stand with me, but don't stand yet. I want to say a couple things. I, I love that song we just sang, and I love your love for Jesus. And I know that every one of us comes here needy and broken and needing Jesus and he is the only savior we saw that last week right he is the only savior and and we're going to his word now and we're going to trust him to do what only he can do in our hearts I hope you all got that extra hour of sleep last night if you're anything like me you go oh I got an extra hour you know I'll just uh, stay up but maybe you got that extra hour and you're ready really to dig into the word with me because we are looking in the perfect word of God and we are, we are trusting the Holy Spirit to do his work in our hearts and that that would flow out into our marriages, our parenting, our households, our relationships, everywhere we go. That's our prayer, that's our hope. And I think you know this, if you're new at Grace, you'll catch on very quickly. We primarily go book by book through Bible books. Uh, we go verse by verse, expository preaching, and we take a passage of Scripture every week, and we look for God's agenda. We, we don't bring our own. We're, we're, we're trusting God for, for His agenda. We're looking for His, and we're trusting Him to transform our hearts by His Spirit through His Word. That's what we're all about, and we're in the book of Acts, You'll notice on the front of the bulletin, it talks about the continuing story. Christ's work continues. The story of Christ's work through his witnesses for, for his purposes. And that story often involves pain and suffering. We call it persecution. The Bible word for what we're going to look at today is persecution. And we're going to see what is it and what is it not and how should we respond? Because that's what we're going to see. What I read right now in Acts 4, we're going to see the apostles' response to being persecuted for their faith in Christ. So take your Bibles and stand with me, and I'm going to read Acts 4, 13 to 31. And if you feel like, wait a minute, you're making a big deal here about getting into the Bible. Yes unapologetically so. This is the word of God right here. Acts 4, beginning at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak 
of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now Lord Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today needy and flawed and broken and acknowledging that you are perfect and acknowledging that your word is perfect and acknowledging that Jesus you're the only savior and asking you to have your way in our hearts today for your glory amen all right please be seated all right so we're talking about persecution and when you when you hear the word persecution, you probably have an idea in your mind about what it is and whether or not you've experienced it. Now, we know that it started, persecution against Christians, started right here in Acts in the context of the healing of the lame beggar at the beautiful gate in chapter 3 and then as it flowed into chapter 4. We know that this was the first persecution against Christ's church. So every persecution that has come and gone since and every persecution that will started right here, had its origin right here. That's a pretty wild thought that we are reading today about the first time that the church of Jesus Christ was persecuted. Chapter 24 of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, begins with Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you at that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. 
Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And then Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Well, that strikes American Christians as wacky. We love to be loved by all. Bonhoeffer begins his words in this chapter this way. Neither failure nor hostility can weaken the messenger's conviction that he has been sent by Jesus. See, any persecution that you encounter in any realm for your faith in Christ, you must go with the confidence knowing that Jesus sent you. Jesus sent you. Bonhoeffer said this. It's a, it's a, it's a good thought. He said, the criminal has to suffer his punishment in secret. But the disciples will have to stand before governors and kings for Christ's sake for a testimony to them and to the Gentiles, and the test of suffering will forward the testimony. Have you ever thought about that? That any persecution that you encounter for your faith in Christ will further your testimony, not shut it down. In fact, he says this. He says, the Holy Spirit himself will stand by their side and make them invincible. I know when we were all younger, we thought we were invincible. We could leap tall buildings with a single bound and things like that. But do you realize that you really are, as a believer, you really are invincible until the moment that God has ordained that you will go home to be with Jesus? Have you ever given that much thought that you are literally in... Now, don't go out and try to leap tall buildings with a single bound, okay? Don't do something foolish. But have you ever thought that, wow, I am invincible until Jesus calls me home? And then he says this, and, 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 and we'll go away from Bonhoeffer after this, but here's what he said. The messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. Now that's a good summary of persecution. Today I want to talk to you about responding to persecution because that's what's really going on here in Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 31. And, and notice the apostles don't react, they respond. Our first reaction a lot of times is to fight back, to, to lash out, to hit back. They don't react, they respond. They respond to persecution encountered for their faith in Christ, specifically their bold proclamation of the gospel. That's what they're being persecuted for. Now let's think about persecution. You look in the early life of the church, there were at least five outbreaks of persecution in the first 10 years alone. Seriously, in the first 10 years alone, there were five outbreaks of persecution against the church. And it all started here in the Jerusalem church. Acts 4 is where it all begins, the first persecution of the church. Here the church is literally weeks old. We're talking weeks old. 3,120 brand new baby Christians doing what Christians are called to do. They're, they're loving Jesus. And that love for Christ is being, is being shown through their devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God, to prayer, talking to God, to fellowship, which we have learned, and we're going to keep on learning until Christ returns, that it is caring and sharing community where you share of yourself and what God has blessed you with. 
and they're remembering Christ's death on the cross, and the church is weeks old. It's not like, hey, you know, when the church gets a few years old, we'll, we'll let it have some persecution so it'll grow stronger. We're talking like if you plant a little plant in your backyard and it's like six inches tall, and then like the wind starts blowing, you're like, wait, I gotta protect my little plant. Well, here, this brand new church is, is being persecuted right off the bat. They're indwelt by the Spirit. They're empowered by the Spirit. They've got Jesus with them, so they are strong. And so what begins in chapter 4 escalates in chapter 8, leads to the death of both James and Stephen, and things after that just ramp up. There is no downturn in persecution, no slowdown in persecution. It just keeps going through the centuries. Now, the first persecution you see in the book of Acts comes from the Jews. Later on in the book of Acts, it comes from the Romans. But what you see in persecution is that Satan sprays to all fields. He is an equal opportunity hater of all things that, is, that are good, and he uses all kinds for his evil purposes. In AD 35, Stephen is martyred. 42, the apostle James is beheaded by Herod Agrippa. In the first three centuries of the church's history, you see uh, huge persecutions, eras, really, of persecution of really gigantic proportions against the church. The first big persecutor of the church was Nero, starting mid-60s AD, and he concocted cruelly bizarre ways of torturing Christians. He wrapped them up and sewed them up in the skins of animals and, and, and then fed them to hungry wild dogs. He soaked them in wax and used them as torches to light for his parties. In AD 65, Peter and Paul were executed. In the 80s, it was Domitian. Next, he used the rack to literally stretch Christians out and tear them limb by limb, literally pulling their arms and legs off. He burned and mutilated them with hot branding irons. He boiled them alive. They were whipped to a bloody pulp. They were killed with stones. They were hung up. They were gored by bulls. Around 162 AD, Christians began to get their heads chopped off more regularly. Once there were 300 Christians burned alive in a kiln. In 2000, excuse me, in 202 AD, Emperor Severus forbid conversion to Christianity. He said it's against the law to become a Christian. In 303, a huge persecution began. There were four edicts that called for the burning of church buildings, sacred writings to be burned, Christians to lose civil rights, clergy to be imprisoned and forced to sacrifice to the emperor. In 304, all the people were were required to sacrifice to the emperor or face death. Who's behind all this? Satan is. Satan, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the deceiver, the father of lies, is the instigator of all persecution against Christ's church that ever was and ever will be. He is the hater of Christ and all who truly know Christ. So what you see in Acts 4 is that the first persecution that we're looking at today fueled a long string of satanically instigated attacks against Christ and his people. Satan hates the Bible, the gospel, all believers. 
to the point today that there are totally millions of professing believers being persecuted for their faith in Christ. According to an article by Justin Long, more people have died for their faith in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries combined. During this century, there are documented cases in excess of 20 million martyrs for Christ. From AD 33 to 1900, there were 14 million documented martyrs. Now, there are times the church goes through periods of of less persecution. There are times that the church goes through more persecution. There are periods where Christianity is tolerated, and there are periods where it is not. Times where persecution is physically deadly, other times where it is socially dangerous. But whatever form it takes, in whatever place you live, when it comes, there will always be persecution because Satan always hates Jesus and always hates believers. The dark side hates God's kingdom of light. So we we need to be serious about that. What is persecution? What actually is persecution? I, know, I think a lot of times we miscategorize. Sometimes we claim persecution when really we are reaping the consequences of our sin. We saw that in 1 Peter. That oftentimes you go, oh, I'm being persecuted. But no, you're actually getting the consequences of your sin. Other times we say, well, you know, there's a relational issue I have with someone, so I'm being persecuted. No, maybe it's because they don't like you. Or you don't like them and you've stirred things up. Persecution is where you are suffering for your faith in Christ. When you experience something bad for doing something good for Jesus and the gospel. That's persecution. That's real persecution. Enduring unjust treatment for your faith in Christ. And that can be physical, social, or emotional. It's any bad thing known or unknown to you that comes your way because of your good testimony for Christ. It's possible, especially living in America, to be persecuted for your faith in Christ and not even know it. You didn't get that promotion. You weren't invited to this or that. And it could very well be because of your testimony for Christ. That would mean that you're living your testimony out, you're, you're, you're professing faith in Christ, and then you're excluded from certain things because of that. It's very easy if people aren't, you know, chopping Christians' heads off to think, well, you know, it's all good and well, and Christians are, are thought well of, and, and it's not like we should, be thought, we should want to be thought bad of. But there are people everywhere who hate Christians. There are people everywhere who hate Christians. Jesus said in John 16, too, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. Jesus also said you should expect intimidation and threats and exclusion and unfair treatment and emotional abuse. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the prophets that came before you. Persecution actually means, the word actually means to chase someone down, to pursue them. And we tend to think it's all about either being killed or beat up really bad for your faith in Christ. And for many, it is. For many, it is. But then Jesus describes other persecutions, insults, intimidation, being left out. We know from 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire 
to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do you notice it doesn't say that all who live the perfect Christian life, you know, like I, I said earlier, and I think we could say this every time we gather, we are broken, we are flawed, we are needy, and every one of us needs Jesus every moment of every day, and you know, it's not that if you, only if you live a really, 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 really good Christian life, you'll be persecuted. It says all who desire to live godly in Christ. If your desire, if your, heart, your heart's desire is to live godly in Christ, you will suffer persecution. Because of Christ in you, your hope of glory. It won't be because of your goodness, but of his in you. And persecution can be overtly physical getting beheaded or getting blown up with a bomb. But it can also be covertly relational, which I think we see that probably more often in America, of being shunned or alienated or disrespected or being passed over for something. We do live in a time of relative ease, and I think it's very easy for us then to cave in under social alienation. We want to we be accepted so we compromise biblical convictions and lose our testimony. Persecution in our time usually doesn't kill us. It weakens us because we compromise out of fear. We withhold preaching the gospel because we fear being rejected or we don't, we don't want to be disliked. We don't want any kind of animosity or resistance coming our way. But you look at what was going on in the book of Acts, and this really should teach us. From the very start, all these brand new believers, from the very start, they're devoted to Christ, they're loving Jesus, they're empowered by him and dwelt by the Spirit, filled with power, and the church is giving testimony very clearly in their culture to the grace of God. That's what we should be doing, giving clear testimony to the grace of God in our culture. The church is giving testimony, and people are coming to faith in Christ and miracles were being done by God to authenticate the gospel message through the apostles. And this is what Satan hates. This is what jumpstarts 2,000 plus years of hatred and hostility and persecution because in this context of Acts 4, it was the religious leaders that wanted to silence the gospel. In chapter 3, Beginning at verse 1, Peter and John are being used by God to heal a man that had been lame from birth, and he was at the beautiful gate entrance of the temple, and this man leaps up, and for the first time is able to go into the temple that he was always excluded from because the lame couldn't enter the temple. And this man was leaping and praising God. He was so excited. Wouldn't you be? And Peter preaches to the people and explains to them that Jesus had healed them. That it was the power of Jesus, the name of Jesus, who Jesus is that healed them, healed this man. And many believe, but it, it draws heat from the religious establishment. And so in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, you've got the priests and the temple guard and the Sadducees coming at Peter and John. The guys in the funny robes and the weird hats are coming at them, and they're angry, they're agitated, they're they're greatly annoyed because they were preaching Jesus. That, and every, you know, every time Peter preaches, he, every time he opens his mouth to preach, he's saying, by the way, Jesus died and rose again and you killed him. You're guilty. Whoever he's talking to, he says, you know, you have guilt in this. It's, I think it's important for us to grasp that. And so there's the priest, 
there's 24 groups of priests from all over the land of Israel, and each group would serve two weeks at the temple, and they would offer the prescribed sacrifices morning and evening. You have the captain of the temple guard, second in power only to the high priest. He's like the chief of police, given power by Rome. And the Sadducees who deny the authority of Scripture and deny the resurrection. And this little core of people comprise the first opposers to these 3,000-some Christians who are gathering in the name of Jesus. And this group that was opposing them was very religious, but they were spiritually dead. Very religious, spiritually dead. Powerful, humanly speaking. Spiritually, no pulse. And they arrest Peter and John for preaching Jesus. They put them in jail. And and this is awesome. I love what Peter and John did. They get arrested for preaching Jesus. They get called to account. They keep preaching Jesus. They get sent out. They keep preaching Jesus. So the common thing they're doing is what? Preaching Jesus. They won't stop. In fact, they say, you ask by what authority, by what power we've done this? In the name of the one you killed, the one that God raised, the one that's now alive, it's by him and his power that that this man was healed. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive, and there's salvation in no one else. The gospel is exclusive. There is salvation in no one else. Verse 12, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We need salvation, and we can only be saved in one name, Jesus. No gospel, no salvation. No Jesus, no salvation. Apart from Christ and the gospel, no salvation. John 14, 6, Jesus said it very clearly. And no one is excluded. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It doesn't get any clearer than that. But the Sanhedrin hold a special meeting. They take Peter and John, they they throw them out, and they try to figure out how to respond to the message and what to do about Peter and John. They don't know what to do, and so they have to talk about it, and they're amazed at the confidence with which these men are speaking. These men who had not been to rabbinical school to receive formal theological training, they hadn't been to seminary. They're like, how do these guys know this stuff? Oh, they've been with Jesus. And they wanted to silence the preaching about Jesus because it showed their guilt before God. The present facts before them were undeniable, irrefutable. The healed beggar was standing before them. You think, well, wait a minute. No one could deny this, but they found a way. They command Peter and John not to speak anymore at all in the name of Jesus. Don't name Jesus. Don't preach Jesus. Don't talk to anyone about Jesus. Now, how should Peter and John think about all this? What was going to drive their response? What kind of thought process was going on that would, that would uh, what kind of mindset, what kind of worldview, what kind of perspective do they have? Whose authority would they acknowledge? Now, when you, when you encounter persecution for your faith in Christ, when something bad comes at you because of your good testimony in Christ, you've got, you got a decision to make. You've got, you've got four options in, in terms of how you respond in general. I'm going to outline these for you. Four mindsets, four worldviews that drive your response. They're not your specific response. They're the mindset behind it. And by the way, anything you face that's bad as a result of your good testimony in Christ is persecution, 
but you can also apply this to other situations. This one here, this situation called for civil disobedience on the part of the apostles. Rome had given the captain of the guard power. They were self-governing under Rome's authority, and they were the civil authorities, and so this called for civil disobedience on the part of the apostles. But here's your first option in terms of an overall response. I'm going to call it religious isolationism where you acknowledge God's authority but completely deny man's authority. In your mind, man isn't even in the picture. There's no human authority. This is the kind of person that would move out into the wilderness and find a really tall you know, pile of rocks and get on top of that pile of rocks and say, only God's my authority and no one can get to me here. You know, Until a stealth bomber comes and does a flyby. Um, but this person lives in denial. They're like, they got blinders on. They don't want to see what's directly in front of them. This is the kind of person that if a policeman walked in the building, they would say, you have no authority over me at all. And we would say, cuff them, right? <laughs> Romans 13 very clearly tells us the governing authorities are ordained by God. So religious isolationism doesn't work. Your second option is secular isolationism, even more blinded than the first. And acknowledges man's authority and denies God's. Keeps God completely out of the picture. This is blinder than the first. This is the prevalent mindset of our day. This is where we live. God doesn't exist. That's what people say. Now the third option I'm going to call illogically compromised because you acknowledge God's and man's authority but you put man's authority over God's due to fear of man. You're blinded by fear and you cave into whatever mankind tells you to do. That's illogically compromised. Now, the fourth option is the good one. It's the biblically balanced one. It's the one you want. It acknowledges God's and man's authority, but appropriately puts God's authority over man's where it rightfully belongs. This is where the apostles were. This was their mindset. They held to a biblically balanced view. They respected God-given human authority, but when push came to shove, they were commanded to disobey God. They would not do it. And they were perfectly fine. Did you notice they were perfectly fine accepting whatever consequences the human authority said they were going to give them? Whether it is right in your sight to do this or not, you judge. They're saying, we'll take whatever consequences you give us. Really, up up to death. Kill us. We're still not going to stop doing this. It's like Daniel. Kill me if you must, but I'm not going to stop praying. Peter and John already know how they're going to respond. They don't have to have a meeting like the Sanhedrin. They already know their answer. What was driving their response is the fourth option, the biblically balanced one, the one we need to hold to. Now, I want to look a little more closely at what these first Christians actually did. In the balance of our time, I want to, I want to look at this because I think it makes sense if you're talking about persecution and you're looking at the very first persecution, let's see exactly how they responded. What did they do? flown out of that mindset of biblical balance what was their specific response to persecution four things that 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 really jump out at us from the text the first is that they obediently walked with god they yielded obediently to the spirit and the word they were following the the word and, and and trusting the spirit they were filled with the holy spirit to be filled with the spirit you must obediently obey the spirit and the word You can't disobey the word and be filled with the spirit. The spirit will never speak contrary to the word. Spirit speaks through the word. And if you want to prepare for responding to persecution, humbly follow Jesus. It's simple. Follow Jesus. 
Follow what the word says. Yield completely to the Holy Spirit and his power and wisdom. Verse 13 says, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived something about them. They're like, they didn't go to our school. But here they're arguing effectively from the scriptures. Here's two Galilean fishermen successfully arguing a case before the highest Jewish supreme court and it was shocking. That's why they were astonished. They recognized they'd been with Jesus. They would have remembered them from Jesus' trial and And they were doing what Jesus did and speaking with authority. By the way, Jesus had no formal training either. They see the man standing beside Peter and John and they can't say anything in opposition. They wanted to. But here's proof positive where they couldn't do it because all the people were praising God. So they command them to leave. Verse 15, they command them to leave and they, they confer with one another. What shall we do? We can't deny that something happened here. It's a notable sign. We can't deny that. Verse 17, though, but it's, so it won't spread any further. Okay, let's shut this down now. Let's warn them not to speak anymore in this name to anyone. Okay, so this is an absolute prohibition. So verse 18, that's what they tell them. You cannot speak to anyone in the name of Jesus. Don't mention Jesus to anyone. Verse 19, they say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. Verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now they keep threatening them, and then they let them go. Can you imagine the kind of threats they're hearing? We're gonna throw you in jail, we're gonna beat you up, we're gonna, we're gonna do stuff to you that's bad. And, and, and they're like, well, we can't, what, what can we do? The guy, the guy is over 40 years old. Now, he's not just gonna have his limbs regenerated on their own. At this point in time, you know, you, you're gonna lose all hope of ever being healed. This is notable. And Peter and John were prepared for this persecution because they had walked with Jesus for three years. Peter had gone through the humbling experience of denying Christ and then being recommissioned by Christ. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now look, they probably would have been let go if they would have said something like this. You know, you're right. What were we thinking? We didn't get a permit to come into your temple. Oh, we're really sorry. We'll go somewhere else. We won't talk about Jesus to anyone. We'll take our gospel stuff way out into the wilderness. We won't do it in any of the city limits of Jerusalem because, you know, we want to be accepted by the community and embraced in the city, and we don't want to alienate or offend anyone. Send us to sensitivity training. Here's why they couldn't do that. Here's why it makes absolutely no sense for a Christian to do that. The apostles, as well as us, have received direct orders from Jesus to be his witnesses. The linchpin of Acts, uh, Acts 1.8, Jesus meant what he said. He said, the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you and you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So you can't wiggle out of that one. So they would be disobeying Jesus if they obeyed this situation and God, not the human government, in this situation is the ultimate authority. It's just clear. By the way, you've got to be submissive to the governing authorities. As long as they don't tell you to disobey God. Here's when civil disobedience is appropriate. When you are commanded to disobey God. 
when the, when the government decrees something that clearly is contrary to God's word, God must be obeyed. That's your rule. So if you're one of those that say, I'm not paying taxes because I just don't like the whole idea and it seems unfair, that's a bad example. Don't do that. That's sinning. And, and here's the deal. When you are civilly disobedient, you need to be willing to take the consequences. Be willing to take the consequences. If it's right in the sight of you to do that, you judge it, meaning we'll take the consequences. We're just not going to stop doing what God has told us to do. So Peter and John answer, and do you know who else answered like that? Socrates had answered like that in, in the past. Something similar. When he had stood trial in Athens, was ordered to stop his teaching of philosophy, and he says, if, if, you're, if you do it once more, you'll die. And here's what Socrates said. Men of Athens, I love you and respect you, but I will obey the God instead of you. And I am going to continue to do this, and I will not stop speaking and exhorting you and pointing out the truth to any of you that I meet. Now, we don't know if Peter knew about this. Luke probably did, actually. But the principle here is obedience to God's command that is a matter of paramount importance and is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. You see an example. Saul fails to obey God by completely routing the Amalekites, and the prophet Samuel says to Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of of the Lord, to obey is better than sacrifice. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. Arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. This is the repeated mistake of many of the leaders of Israel in generations past, over and over again. Stubborn inclination of their evil hearts, as God put it, rather than obeying God. We're to obediently walk with God and yield obediently to the Spirit and the Word and let the chips fall where they might. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is that they patiently waited on God. They didn't take it personally. Did you notice in their prayer, they go and talk to their friends after they're released, and they, they, here's how they pray. They pray focused on God, not themselves. There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to occur. They're like, you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. In fact, they, they even say sovereign Lord. They, they use a word, despotess. It literally means the all-powerful ruler over everything. It's, it's a very uncommon word to use for God, sovereign Lord, and, and saying, you're the one of, of authority here. You're the one. And they didn't take it personally. They trusted God to make things right. We're to contend for the gospel, not our rights. We would pray in this situation for healing from emotional pain. We would consider suing for defamation of character. We get our feelings hurt way too easily. I know, I'm one of those. Coddled Christians can't, uh, can't handle crisis and they crumble in crisis. And, and yeah, I could be exhibit A on this. You know that sticks and stones may break my bones but words can never harm me? Well, you know what? That's not true because words do harm, don't they? But God in, in his grace has a way of tenderizing our hearts and, and toughening up our skin. We learn obedience to the things we suffer and he lovingly brings it our way often through allowing persecution in our life. They prayed for relief. No, we would pray for relief. They didn't pray for relief. They prayed for boldness. Boldness. Our first inclination is to to watch our, for ourselves and they are more concerned with God's glory. They knew, they had a perspective, they knew that unbelief was not an intellectual 
issue. It was a moral heart issue. The Sanhedrin hear and see a miracle. They hear the gospel preached. They refuse to repent and believe. They would not budge, budge one bit in trusting in Christ, even though all the evidence and all the proof were to the contrary. They should have done this, but they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. That's what happens when people are blinded by Satan. John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, just know it hated me first. Patiently wait on God. Don't take it. I'll say this. They didn't take it personally. For us, here's what we have to say. Let's not take it too personally because we just, we're just hardwired to take things personally, aren't we? Uh, and again, I'm exhibit A on that. Third thing we see them do is that they boldly witnessed for God. They were appropriately bold. They weren't arrogant. They were appropriately bold. In fact, verse 13 says they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Then when the church prayed, verse 29, they prayed that God would give them boldness to do what they were told not to do. In verse 31, we see that they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They didn't listen to the religious leaders. They listened to God. They had to be commanded not to speak about Jesus. Many believers today would have to be commanded to speak about Jesus. But don't be arrogant. Don't presume that you know what to do in every situation. Just trust Jesus to to lead and guide and protect and provide for you and give you appropriate words to say in the midst of anything that comes your way because of your good testimony in Christ. Be concerned if no one ever gets annoyed at your testimony. Be concerned if no one ever hears your testimony. And be confident in Christ and speak with the authority of God's word. Boldly witness for God and be appropriately bold. Last thing I'll mention is this. They joyfully worshiped God. That's what we see. They, they come back to their friends. They've resolved to follow God's leading in everything and to worship Jesus in all of their life, and they did. They said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea, everything in them. They're quoting the Bible. They're quoting Psalm 146. They're quoting Psalm 2. They're recognizing God's authority over all of history, over all people. They're praising God in thankfulness. Acts 5, you see that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They joyfully worship God. That's what we need to do in every situation, joyfully worship God. You can apply these things, really obediently walking with God and patiently waiting on God and boldly witnessing for God and joyfully worshiping God. You can apply all those things to every aspect of your life. It works, and especially in persecution. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. Don't put blinders on and deny what is evident. Where's your allegiance? Where's your allegiance? Obediently walk with God. Whose reputation are you concerned about? Patiently wait upon God. Don't fight for your rights. Boldly witness for God. What's your most pressing cause? There's a lot of activists, right, in our in our society today what's your activist cause because that's what you'll talk about the most and that's what you're going to be fired up about and that's what you're going to put all your energy into make the gospel your activist cause and joyfully worship God they were counted worthy to suffer and they were glad for it because guess what the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved is the power of God I want to close as the worship team starts to come up. I want to close by telling you two quick stories. I think it's important sometimes to really hear someone else's story because then you can kind of try to figure out your own. The first, I'll just call it the story of the praying coach. 
the praying coach, a guy named Joe Kennedy. Uh, just this, this month, it's been going on. He was told in September that he could not pray at midfield after a high school football game. He'd been doing this for 20 years. I don't know this guy, and I will tell you this. Isn't it so easy for Christians, I hear this all the time, Christians bashing Christians who speak boldly about their faith in the public square while we sit and do nothing. I don't know about this guy. All I know is that he's been praying for this many years, and he's been told you can't do that anymore because you're going to harm people for doing that. That's going to be harmful. We'll let you go in a room where no one can see you, but you can't be seen out at midfield after the game. He got a letter from the superintendent telling him, you can't do this or you're going to get fired. And I was glad. I was Googling him yesterday. I was glad to see that he's still praying at midfield. He might get fired. Whether it's right in the sight of you to do this, you be the judge. We're not going to stop doing what God has told us to do. By the way, Romans 14 tells us, your own, to your own master you stand or fall. So if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin for you. The second story I'll tell you is about a person who was recently persecuted in January of this year. His name is Manjuma, and he is a 13-year-old Nigerian boy. And Islamic insurgents came upon, thousands of them came upon his village and killed 23 You'll see a picture of him there. They, they sliced his face with a machete. They gouged his right eye out. They cut off body parts and left him for dead. The villagers and his family members literally were digging his grave. And then he came to and started crying out. This, this young boy knows Jesus and it's a miracle that he's alive. It's a story of miracle joy because in fact he calls himself miracle. He's going, he says, I'm a miracle. And, and he's full of joy. He's got this beaming smile. And, and, and by the way, the bigger picture of him, you see his arm is all wrapped up. He's holding a bag so that he can actually go to the restroom. He's holding a, a bag to the side. He can't see out of one eye. He's, he's been mutilated for life. This was in the August 2015 edition of the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. And he, he's displaying the joy that reflects an eternal reality of knowing Jesus. He was as good as dead. People look at him today and think, your life must be a waste. And he says, I want my, 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 my persecutors to know that I forgive them, and I want them to know that they, were, they didn't know what they were doing. Lord God, thank you that joy is a miracle that you grant to Christians who fully trust you and we are so self-absorbed and often looking for a miracle drug to cure our souls and we have so many first world problems that we are just so worried about and we complain about the surface stuff and we get a little bit of happiness but true joy escapes us Lord God I pray that while our physical death is certain and only you know the day. I pray that whatever days you give us, that we would know Jesus as our eternal joy because our eternal life in him is certain. And thank you, Lord, that Christ's death was certain in your mind before the foundation of the world. That he died the most horrifying of deaths so that we could be astounded by his sacrifice and be filled with his joy. We were your enemies and you substituted yourself in our place dying the death we deserve so that we might have life. 
Lord, may we live with that joy. May all who hear these words who don't have that joy turn to Jesus, the only Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.